My name is Mary and I am an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to be here and grateful to be sober. And I would like to thank Val and the committee for inviting me here and for giving me the opportunity to be of service. And I would like to thank Jim C. We didn't exactly have phone sex. <laughs> it was spiritual, right? But he was wonderful. He was very communicative. And uh, thank you. I love you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank Maggie for picking me up at the airport today and for buying me that beautiful lunch. And you're such a good AA, and I love your enthusiasm. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, by the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll be 20 years sober on August 10th night, uh, this year. And I truly believe that my higher power was waiting for this year before he sent me back to Calgary. And I'll tell you why. When I landed today, I got such feelings of those remember whens. Because it is in Calgary that I had my last hurrah before I collapsed completely with alcoholism. It was a place where I brought my two little boys from Jamaica. You see, at that time, the uh, Canadian High Commission in Jamaica, in the West Indies, told me that the place to go was Calgary. And uh, and I thought that would be a, a good idea. And uh, I came here with my second husband, who was a Canadian citizen. And um, all hell broke loose. And uh, it's a lot of memories, and I'm really very grateful to be here. I remember going down to the intergroup office. Now, don't ask me where it is, but I knew that I found it. And they gave me a big book, or I bought it, and I put the cover on back to front so nobody would see what I was reading. <laughs> and then they sent me to a meeting downtown, a noontime meeting, and I don't know where that meeting was because... I was half drunk. And I remember the people said, come on, come down and sit with us. I said, no, I just, I'm here to listen. And then I ended up in Renfrew Detox. So I have a lot of memories. I was here for two and a half years, and I'll tell you, I don't know anything about Calgary. <laughs> um, but you can tell I, uh, I'm not Canadian. Um, I'm also not Jamaican. Uh, actually, I'm Irish, born in Scotland. Uh, by some hideous joke of the gods. You know, being Irish, born in Scotland is a great dilemma. Because half of me wants to drink all the time and the other half doesn't want to pay for it. And the other thing about being Irish born in Scotland is I felt like a leprechaun in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. We have a saying in AA that coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And tonight, Mike happened to mention Blessed Oliver Plunkett's head in Ireland. Now, the funny thing is, on Wednesday night, I was speaking at a group in Toronto. And for the first time ever in my AA life, I mentioned Blessed Oliver Plunkett's Head in Ireland. Now, you might wonder what that is. Well, there's a church in Drogheda that has a head of a saint in there, just a head. And the reason I mentioned it is I was trying to talk about the illness of alcoholism before the drink. You see, it is my opinion, please keep an open mind, I'm just talking about me. It is my opinion that I was born with the illness of alcoholism. I was born with a stick of dynamite waiting for a match. And how that illness manifested was that from I could think, all my life I felt different. 
all my life I felt less than, and all my life I felt as if I was on the outside looking in. And I used to think, as I said, it's because I was Irish born in Scotland. Because, you know, the Irish are stoic. And my, I'm a, I was Catholic, and my last name was Irish. So they, they used to tell me that I wasn't really a Scot. My old grandfather used to say, just because you're born in a stable doesn't mean you're a horse. You know? And when I was young, I used to go to Ireland for the uh, my summer vacation. And one day when I was a teenager and I had discovered shocking pink jeans and all of that stuff, I was walking past Blessed Oliver Plunkett Church. And this old woman dressed in black came down and she says, Jesus, Mary and Joseph were being invaded. And she looked at me. So I know I didn't belong there either. When I came into the fellowship and it said that the problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind, not the body, I didn't have a problem with that. I knew there was always something wrong with my head long before I drank because people were always saying to me, there's something seriously wrong with your head. And my mother, my mother, God rest her soul, um, when I would, I was a bit bizarre when I was young, um, and I hadn't had a drink, and she used to read her paper, but she'd really be looking at me. And sometimes she would say to me, I don't know where you come from. <laughs> and if she didn't know, who knew? So I had no sense of security. <laughs> and you know, I was brought up in my grandmother and my grandfather's home and they had 11 children. And I was the first child of the eldest daughter. And my father had gone away to sea because he, uh, that's how he coped with his problems. He took them to sea. So I grew up in this house with all these adults and they were all good people. But I can't trust my recall regarding my family life. But it looks like they were really all good people. And there was no alcohol allowed in my home. My old grandfather was a coal miner. And he taught me to reach when I was very young. And he was a very bright, brilliant man. And I just loved him. But every Friday and Saturday night, my old grandfather would get washed. And then he'd walk down to the bar, the pub. And every Friday and Saturday night, he'd come back staggering up the street from east to west, the way the drunk walks. And all the neighbors were behind their curtains laughing at my hero. And my granny was behind her curtain with a rolling pin and a rosary. <laughs> the two staples of the Irish household. And every Friday and Saturday night there would be the only war that there ever was in my home. And every Sunday when my old grandfather and me would be walking up to church, he'd say, you're the only one who understands me because you and me are different. And he used to say to me, but I won't do it again, princess. I won't do it again. Sure, every Friday and Saturday night he'd be doing it again. Um... I have something a lot of alcoholics have, although you will never hear Al-Anon give us any credit for it. <laughs> and that is, I had a high IQ. <laughs> there are no stupid alcoholics. If you're an alcoholic of my type, we think so much, it's a wonder we don't disappear into our navel. You know. I mean, I used to see my grandfather when he was coming off a drunk and he'd be sitting like this and I'd say, what are you thinking about? He'd say, I'm pondering the immensities. And I used to do that a lot. Anyway, because of this high IQ, I was sent to a convent to be educated by the psychopathic nuns. 
I used to think it was the nuns who screwed me up. But I was to learn much later that the nuns were teaching me to have character. They were still psychopathic, but they were teaching me to have character. I didn't know that character is something you do when no, nobody's looking. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is also about the development of character. But you see, I had a lot of rage and anger in me, and I didn't get that from my family. The other thing I had from the get-go was I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And I never got that from my home. I just came with a body. And I had a great rage and anger about being Irish born in Scotland, about being a second-class citizen, about all other kind of things that had nothing to do with reality. They were all in my head. So when I was 15, I was kicked out of that convent for fighting. And just before, the month before they kicked me out, the old mother superior said to me, I used to have to sit outside her office so she could keep her little beady eyes on me. And she used to say to me, if you memorize that sign up there, it might do something for your measly little life. <laughs> and I looked at the sign, and it said, of course you see it is much less than courage of heart or holiness, but in my walk to me it seems that the grace of God is in courtesy. Now way back then I wanted nothing to do with that stuff. But many years later, when I was to come through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was the courtesy and the kindness that you extended to me that kept me here for the grace of God to come in. The courtesy and the grace of God that is such a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I eventually ended up down in London, England. You see, because I was always looking for somebody to blame, because I did not know that I was the problem, because I did not know that wherever I went, I took myself along. I was always projecting. And that is why the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, when it tells us we have to take the word blame out of our vocabulary and throw it away, it has the magic of wellness. But I didn't know that then, and I hadn't drank. I was afraid to drink, because I knew I was CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic. So I wasn't going <laughs> to drink. Anyway, the thing is this, what... What my behavior looked like to everybody was mental illness. And it seemed to me that it was mental illness. And my great-grandfather had died in a mental institution. So I thought, and you know, my family are not right. I mean, they're good people, but they're not right, I'll tell you. I mean, I was saying to Maggie that Ireland's an open-air asylum, for God's sake, you know. I mean, for example... To show you the kind of home that I come from, to show you I had nothing to judge my behavior with, I have an aunt, and she can be sitting having a cup of tea, and all of a sudden she freezes in time. <laughs> and visitors will come in and say, what happened to her? And my family says, she's just away, she'll soon be back. <laughs> So I had no reference point here. <laughs> so anyway, I was very angry at the English because I thought that the English had screwed up the Irish and the Scots. So I, w I was determined to go down to England and to get back some of what I thought they had taken from us. The colony of Ireland and Scotland, right? I was kind of like Braveheart. You ever see Braveheart? <laughs> Do you know when the English are torturing him and he's lying on the rack and he shouts, freedom! That's what I felt like, you know. I'll die for my country, you know. Anyway, I went down there. I was 21. I joined British Airways. And they taught me how to walk, how to talk, how to say yes, no, thank you, ma'am. How to use my knife and fork from the outside. Uh. And if you look at me, I was in my uniform and I was looking good. The only thing is, inside, I still felt less than. Inside, I was beginning to fragment. I knew something was wrong with me. I really felt, you know, I used to be in a lot of people and I'd think I'm different from everybody, but what's wrong with me? And I didn't want to drink and I knew I needed some comfort, so I did the next best thing to drink and I could think of and I got married. 
I married and we went to live in Jamaica. I married a nice man. He was a very nice man. He was a cultured, nice man. He married a figment of my imagination. (laughs) I had created a persona for myself that had no reality in fact. And it was wonderful in Jamaica. I had maids and gardeners. uh, Because I might have been crazy, but I wasn't stupid. I married a rich man. And... uh, (laughs) And I had my BMW, and after about a year, my first son was born. And just after he was born, and I loved that child with every fiber of my being. And just after he was born, I thought I was really going to lose it. And I was going to fragment into a million pieces. And somebody said to me, have a drink. I was 25. And I drank it. Jamaica has 151 proof rum. It is marvelous. You drink that 151 proof rum and it goes all the way down to your toes. Now, Dr. Silver says in the big book that men and women drink because they like the sense of ease and comfort that they get. It says in our big book that our drinking life is the only normal living some of us will ever have. All my life, my skin didn't fit. I had three of those rums, or I don't know how many I had, and for the first time in my life, my skin fit. Alcohol is the ability to go down deep inside of me and steal the madness and the blackness and whatever else is going on in my soul. Alcohol is the ability to take me and put me right there. Do you know where there is? There is no there. It is inside of us. So I immediately drank on a daily basis. And I had an amazing tolerance, which is another sign of alcoholism, but I didn't know that then. And I would have a couple of gin and tonics in the morning, go and play tennis, have a few planters punch at lunchtime, and then get down to serious drinking in the evening. And nobody knew how much I drank, and it didn't show. And uh, after about four and a half years, my second son was born, and I was a daily drinker all that time. And I am amazed that he was born without any damage. I am, I thank God for it. I don't know how that happened. But by this time, I have no control anymore. It says in the big book, living uh, in the book, living sober, that we have when the cucumber becomes a pickle. And what happened is, I started becoming obnoxious, and I had no control over what I did anymore. And people in Jamaica would call and say, Mary, I'm having a party, please don't come. (laughs) Because what happened now is I forget to be who I am and I become a Glasgow street fighter after a few drinks. And I'll take up, if someone offends me, I'll take up a bottle and I'll break it and say, come and get it. And that wasn't acceptable in the social milieu that I was around. I was in bad shape. I was shaming my husband. I was shaming my in-laws. I was shaming everybody. Everybody was worried about me in Scotland. They didn't know what was wrong with me. So it was suggested that maybe I'd thrown away my religion and the God of my understanding many, many years before. So it was recommended that I perhaps look for something spiritual. Because nobody thought I was an alcoholic. They just thought I had to drink because I was crazy. Now, Jamaica has a group of people they call Rastafarians. And because my husband was such a respected man in Jamaica, I was allowed to go anywhere. They knew I was one brick short of a lord, but they allowed me to go anywhere. And I used to go up into the mountains in Jamaica, and I would watch the Rastafarians. And the Rastafarians are very spiritual people. They have a god they call Jah. They hate alcohol. They read from the Old Testament. The only thing is, they smoke a lot of pot. <laughs> they used to say to me, Mary, come try a little sense of me on your mouth. Look how the liquor is making your eyes red. 
and I used to say, I don't want nothing that's going to screw up my brain. I'll stick to liquor. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, way back then, I saw something that is affecting the whole of Alcoholics Anonymous, both in America and Canada. Now, please keep an open mind. We wish to be helpful only. But there are people coming to Alcoholics Anonymous who are not alcoholics. They are drug addicts. And they will admit to you freely that they are drug addicts and that they have never had a problem with alcohol. I am not talking about dual addicts here. I'm talking about straight addicts. So much so that they will stand up. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago I was a meeting in Toronto. A midday serenity meeting, that's what it's called. And I went there with a friend of mine and we went in and the chair was there and um, the first person to speak said, my name is so-and-so and I'm an addict. And it was a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I said to the chair, maybe you should define. And he said, no, never mind. I said, well, this is for alcoholics only. He said, never mind. So we went around the table and so I said there was 20 people there. 15 of them castigated me and spoke about the drug use. One alcoholic that I know is 20 years sober and having a lot of problems, got up, screamed, and left. Afterwards, I went up to the chair and I said to him, I said, you know, we can't help. Bill Wilson wrote a pamphlet, our co-founder Bill Wilson wrote a pamphlet called Problems Other Than Alcohol. He said in there that there is no way to make a non-alcoholic addict into an AA member. He said, if we do that, we'll kill them. We can't help them. And also, they can't help us because they don't have a drunk story. So I was telling this guy this. I said, the primary purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous is for the suffering alcoholic. That is our singleness of purpose. He says, where does it say that? I said, it's in all the books. I said, he says, can you email that to me? And he gave me his card, and it was all Addictions Anonymous. And I went on his website, All Addictions Anonymous, and they had quotations from the big book where they had taken the word alcoholic and transposed the word addict. And I sent it all to New York. New York has lost the copyright on the big book, but Canada and the rest of the world hasn't. So they can fix the website. Now, we don't say this to hurt anybody. I have known people who have been sent here as they're really addicts and they're sent to AA and they hang around for up to 10 years and then they go and die of an overdose. But we have to keep Alcoholics Anonymous for the alcoholic. You see, shoemakers stick to their last, as Bill Wilson said. The reason that Alcoholics Anonymous has been successful for so long is because it has a singleness of purpose. And we have to honor that. But anyway, I didn't know all of these things back then. And I used to watch the Rastafarian who hated alcohol. And he would have a big talk. And it was so big you couldn't even see his face. <laughs> and he used to go, I just want to mellow out, man. <laughs> have a little vision. And he would lie down and meditate. That's not me. When I drink, I want justice. When I drink, I want kindness and love. I will eventually end up lying down whether I want to or not. But not right now. So eventually I left my husband. I divorced him. I stayed on the island for a year, a couple of years, and then I left and I went back to Scotland. And they told me about my drinking. And a man I had met in Jamaica who was a Canadian citizen called me. says, come back to Jamaica, marry me, and I'll take you to Canada. And I thought, what a good idea. <laughs> and I did that, and he brought me to Calgary, Alberta, in 1977. Now, when I landed here, it was about minus 40. 
I knew you had to drink a lot of rum in Calgary, Alberta, I'll tell you. <laughs> this man I married was a nice man. He was really a nice man. He was a born-again Christian. And he knew I needed help, and he had me jumping for Jesus for a while. <laughs> and I have great respect for all religions, but it didn't take for me. Anyway, the other thing about him was he wouldn't work. I used to say, why don't you get a job? He'd say, God would provide. <laughs> and we all know God helps those who help himself, right? As soon as I came here, because they were my children, and they were um, seven and four, I put them in school, and I got a job with Drake Personnel. It was that time it was at the Palisa. And after about three months, I got a job with Cooper Laboratories, which was a pharmaceutical company, because I had a serious Valium deficiency. <laughs> You know, I would wake up in the morning and I was shaking so bad I couldn't even lift up my drink. And I knew that if I was working in pharmaceuticals, I would have instant access, because you can trade. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I don't know. I used to, my, my territory was southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, and B.C. And I would drive to some doctor's office. Sometimes I would come to and I'd be sitting outside a doctor's office. And I didn't know if I had been in or not. Because I had blackouts. And how do you make up a daily report? You don't. And sometimes, I, <laughs> I just remembered it. <laughs> One time, I guess I must have been, I don't know, red deer, I don't know where I was. But any time, I came out of blackout and I was on the, um, one of the trails here. I don't know which one it was. And I only had two tires on my car. And the police came, and they said, don't you know it's against the law to drive on rims? <laughs> I had been clonking along this trail, because I don't know what happened to my tires. I was always going up in these islands, because you have these little islands, and they were very foreign to me. I didn't... <laughs> anyway, the police just took my detail bag, locked up the car, and took me home. You know, and I was, I was quite bad. But eventually I had one too many accidents with a company car and they fired me. And um, I started, no, it was, and I sent away that husband because that's what used to happen to me. I'd fall in love, obsessively, compulsively, the same way I drank. And him and me would be like Velcro. <laughs> and then what happens after six months is thrill is gone, thrill is gone. And I'm off looking for that ding-a-ling-a-ling someplace else. <laughs> so I divorced him and I sent him away. And my poor little children. I mean, I never physically abused my children. But I am an alcoholic mother. And it was just me and them. They had no other family here. And they would wake up in the morning and see me lying passed out. I would bring people home that I shouldn't have brought home. And by the grace of God and the great gift of the steps and a loving sponsor, I've been able to deal with all of that. And they saw things that no innocent child should ever see. And I was in great despair because I did not want to drink anymore. But I was beyond human aid. I could not stop drinking for anything. And if you're like me, when you're in despair, you cry for help. And what I do when I'm crying for help is I develop a terrible case of alcoholic telephonitis. I don't know if anybody here suffered from it. Alcoholic telephonitis is a phenomenon that never attacks in the day. Alcoholic telephonitis usually approaches around midnight. When you're sitting alone with your jug and you want to call somebody and tell them how you've been screwed by the world. But you don't want to call anybody nearby because they might come. <laughs> so what you do is you call other countries. You forget there's a time change. They pick up the phone, you pass out. You don't know who you've called to until you get your phone bill. I used to have to go to Lauren Tide Finance to pay my phone bill. Because I'd call everybody. Anyway, I have these two old aunts, uh, the virgin aunts. They're wonderful warriors. And, and uh, they came to Calgary. They came here. They told me I had early menopause and put me in detox. 
That's called Irish rationalization. <laughs> the wonderful thing about being in Calgary detox for me, and this is what I remember, it was me and five native Canadians. And they would hold my soup to me and my coffee to me when I was shaking too much to hold it by myself. And I begin to sense some type of fellowship amongst alcoholics. They told me they were in to dry out for the summer. And they were very kind to me. And I remember this one saying to me that he drank because his spirit was broken. And I thought about that. I thought about that a lot. And many years later when I was reading the Bill Wilson, Carl Jung correspondence, which is in all our literature. You remember Bill Wilson wrote to Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, in 1961 to thank him for being what he said was a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you see, in 1931, Roland H., who was a dipsomaniac, is what they called him in those days, and Roland H. came from a very, very wealthy family in New York, and nothing could help him. And he wasn't sent to Sigmund Freud because Sigmund Freud did not, was not spiritual. He was sent to Carl Jung in Switzerland. And Carl Jung treated him as a manic depressive that was inclined to drink. And after about a year, Carl Jung said Roland H. was cured, and he sent him away. And Roland H. happened to pass by Paris on his way back to the States. And somebody asked him the wrong question. They said, would you like a drink? And in a very short time, he was back at Carl Jung. And Carl Jung said to him then, and now Carl Jung was a brilliant mind, but he had the humility to say to him, I misdiagnosed your case. I can't help you. I have never, ever been successful with an alcoholic of your type. And Roland H. says, you mean I'm hopeless? Carl Jung says, I've never seen them, but once in a while, with alcoholics of your type, strange things happen under a spiritual auspices. And that is that these people have mental and emotional displacements and start having a new set of values. Roland said, well, I'm a religious man. He said, that's not enough. But anyway, Roland Dage went back, he joined the Oxford group. And as you know, eventually, he helped Ebby. And Ebby is the one who took the message to Bill Wilson. That alcoholics are beyond human aid. That was what Carl Jung gave us. And when, Carl, when Bill Wilson wrote to Carl Jung, Carl Jung wrote back. And the thing I heard in Calgary all those years ago was right there on that paper. Because Carl Jung says to him, you know, I truly believe that what the alcoholic has is a thirst for a union with God. But he doesn't know that. He says, it is my opinion that the formula for the alcoholic, and he said it in Latin, is spiritus contra spiritum, which means spirit against spirit. We take in the spirit, but it's the wrong spirit. You see? What I heard in Calgary Detox is it's a broken spirit by drinking spirit that needs spirit to heal it. That is an amazing thing. When I got out of Calgary Detox, when I got out of Calgary Detox, my family went back to Canada, uh, to Glasgow, Scotland, and I'd never heard about AA. I don't remember hearing about it. So what I did was uh, I decided I was going to go back to Jamaica because I wanted things to, to be the way they used to be. And um, <laughs> the night before I went to go back to Jamaica with my two sons because I loved them. And I thought, you know, if I go back there, the father's married again and he'll give me, because he wasn't paying me anything. I thought he can pay me some money every month and I'll, I won't drink anymore and I'll get better. And the night before I was to go back from Calgary, I decided to give myself a perm. I passed out, I drank and I passed out, and the next morning I just looked like something from a spaceship, let me tell you. <laughs> and that's, I was not looking good, you know, I was not. And I ended up back in Jamaica, and the children's father who was remarried, he asked me if he could have the children for a week, and they were gone for 13 years. And um, 
it, if there's a man and a woman here and anything I say can help you from losing your children because it is a death. It is a death. Because I love my children so deeply. And I was such a hopeless alcoholic. Um, I used to live up in the hills in Jamaica and had it all. Now I'm living in an old rundown hotel in Kingston. Uh, by the way, if there's any, if there's anybody here who recognizes me that I used to drink with, 70, 70, 79 in Calgary, or any tourist that was in Jamaica, 80, <laughs> I'd like to make amends. <laughs> A gal's got to live. <laughs> I, you know, alcoholism is the loneliest illness in the world. I used to want somebody to go through the night with me, not because I wanted a hot, passionate night. I want, there's an American author called Scott Fitzgerald who died of alcohol-related problems. And he wrote, they're in the real dark night of the soul. It's always three o'clock in the morning. And for this drunk, three o'clock in the morning, it stayed there and stayed there. And it was lonely and despairing. So I used to want a man, an alcoholic who drank like me, to go through the night with me. Because when him and me drink, things become possible. When I drink with a normal man within two drinks, he tells me I'm a lush and he's out of there. And who needs him anyway? I want an alcoholic who drinks like me. And what happens is, I meet an alcoholic of my type, and him and I have a few drinks, and we both begin to look real good. <laughs> and then him and me will wander off into the enchanted cottage. <laughs> the only thing is, the sun comes up. <laughs> the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And one morning I was walking out with my escort of the night before and a car passed by as if it had been preordained with my ex-husband and my two sons. And I knew I was shaming my children. And their father came and gave me $3,000 to get off the island. And I went to Miami, a drunk of my type. I got a little apartment. I'd drink, pass out, and they'd steal my clothes. I'd drink, pass out. They'd steal whatever I had. They'd take what I had to give and that which I did not have to give. And I ended up selling my blood for $20 a pint and living at the bottom of Lincoln Road on Miami Beach on Skid Row. And my family didn't know what had happened to me. They hadn't heard that my sons had been taken away and nobody knew where I was. My nickname on Skid Row was Ugly and I was ugly. I was so swollen from alcohol and all I could get on my feet was a size ten and a half flip-flop. And because of the heat, the rubber stuck into the soles of my feet and had to be dug out eventually. And that is where the dragon alcohol took me. And all I had was two garbage bags. And in one of them was my children's pictures and everything they had ever written to me. And in the other one was an old statue. And that's all I had. And I don't have to go into what happened. My life on Skid Row was like going through a sewer in a glass bottom boat. And uh, I survived. And eventually I panhandled off an old woman, an old English woman who used to live in Jamaica. And she'd gone to live in Fort Lauderdale. And she contacted my parents. Well, my father was dead. Here's a strange thing. My father never drank. My, my grandfather drank. My father never drank. And when he retired from sea and was at home, and nobody knew where I was. He got up one morning at three o'clock in the morning and said to my mother, I don't know where my lassie is. And he went for a walk, and he dropped dead on the street. At the same time, I was on the street. And I didn't know this. And eventually, my family came again and wept when they saw me. And there was a bench warrant out for my arrest, and they managed to get me back to Canada. And I ended up, I knew some people in Edmonton, and there was a guy there I knew, a nice guy I'd known for many, many years. And he tried to get me right. And he tried to fix me. I've had a lot of wonderful men in my life that I didn't know how to appreciate. And that I didn't recognize the great souls that they had. Because I was selfish, self-centered. And John kept me alive. I married two Johns. 
Hey, yeah, two Johns, not one. Are you there, John? I see you. Um, anyway, uh, he started, well, what happened is, he, uh, he thought he could get me well. And, uh, the first time I tried to kill him, um, he took me to the doctors. Because I'm very violent now when I drink. The second time I tried to kill him, I was in Edmonton, Alberta, and the, I got put in the mental wards. And I was in and out the mental wards for three years. I'm a retread in the mental system. And um, that's why the first few years of my sobriety, I used to go to Kingston Maximum Penitentiary in Ontario. Because there's a lot of guys in there who killed people in blackouts and didn't know they'd done it. And I understand that. Because what happened to me is I would become crazy when I drank. And I became a very violent person. And uh, the last time I was in there, I was taken by the police and I was in a lot of trouble. And the psychiatrist at the Misericordia Hospital in Edmonton wrote something to try and keep me out of prison. And uh, he showed me the report. And it said, chronic alcoholic, abnormal personality and depressive. And he'd been treating me for many years. And he told me there was nothing much he could do for me anymore. You see, they used to keep me sedated for 22 hours and just wake me up to feed me. And uh, I loved that kind of life because I didn't have to think. And when I went to court, the prosecuting attorney wanted to put me away. And the defense said, Your Honor, this woman has suffered tragic social circumstances. And I was a tragic social circumstance till I came to you. One night I was drinking myself sober in Edmonton and a man called Stan C., who had 29 years sobriety, came and he 12-stepped me. And he said to me, Mary, I think you're one of us. I said, Stan, I know I'm an alky, but I'm also nuts. I got a psychiatric report that says I'm nuts. He says, Mary, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is like 12 adjustable wrenches. They fit any nut that comes through the door. <laughs> I had one slip. As I said, my dry date is the 10th of August, 1984. On the 9th of August, 1984, some AA people came in Edmonton and they took me to a meeting. And I was in very bad shape. They told me I was shaking so much, strangers were waving back at me. (laughs) And that night, a little gal called Linda from Winnipeg, who had 12 years sobriety, spent the night with me. And the next day she said, I'm going to leave you now, because you're a loser. And I only stick with winners in Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I go, I'm going to ask you to need that prayer. I said, I don't know for nothing. And then something said, think of your children's eyes. And I knelt down and I held her hands and I repeated the twelve step prayer, uh, third step prayer after her. And from that moment to this, I've had no desire for a drink. None. But does that mean I'm well? I don't think so. The first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is about alcohol and the next eleven steps are about the illness of alcoholism. You see, if my problem was alcohol, I wouldn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. I have all the character defects and all the strange mental quirks that were with me before I drank, and then I have everything else. If my problem was alcohol, for that first year, when I went to meetings three times a day, I'd go in there and they'd say, Mary, did you drink today? I'd say, no. They'd say, see you tomorrow. And after a year, I'd be dead sober, and on my tombstone it would say, she didn't drink, but her head blew apart. <laughs> my problem's about alcoholism. Alcoholism. So, uh, when I, and then they told me, I had to, the, the men loved me, they loved me back to health. I was in terrible state when I came in here. They used to call me Alberta Crude. <laughs> 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 in fact, I was talking to my ex-sponsor, Carol, she's in Edmonton, and we were talking on the phone the other day, because I still talk to her, and I was telling her about some of my sponsees that are all being 13-stepped. I said, Carol, I don't understand this, because when I came in here, I wasn't 13-stepped. She said, do you remember what you look like? <laughs>
I got very active and I thought, they told me that no swearing in AA because this is the Cathedral of the Spirit. Every time you speak, you wear a skirt. You have to learn to take instruction because you have never been, you've just been obnoxious. You have never listened to anybody in your life and your best thinking got you to, to the gutter. Are you willing to take instruction, Mary? Yes, I am. Okay, well, we can show you. I want my children back. Don't even think about that because you might never get your children back. But we can show you a life that's better than any... And you know, there is no road here from where I'm coming from. So it's come true what they said. I truly believe the answer in Alcoholics Anonymous is to stop thinking, stop making decisions for yourself, find a sponsor and ask them everything. Get their opinion on everything that you're going to do. Because I still do that today. Because I don't... The couple of opinion uh, decisions I've made on my own have been nightmares. <laughs> nightmares! When I was about 10 months sober, I found out my son, my eldest son, was going to go to Toronto for school. I called AA in Toronto and two people met me from Intergroup. Took me to a meeting, drove me to the YWCA and um, I joined a group and eventually I was able to get a little job and eventually I could move out of the YWCA and I got a little apartment and I got very active in AA. The old timers in uh, Toronto, or rather in Edmonton, they said to me, Mary, no relationships for a year, but for you it's two. Because you have a propensity for getting married. So if there's any newcomers here thinking about relationships or anybody having a relationship, let me tell you what happened. I was two years sober one Sunday morning. I'm sitting in a closed meeting of AA and I'm looking good. And I look down the table and I see him. And I just know that God has sent me my reward. When boy meets girl on AA campus. And he's looking at me with those AA eyes. <laughs> and I'm looking at him with my AA eyes. You think the light in the eyes of the people is spirituality, sometimes it's psychosis. <laughs> and I mean mine too. You see, the entire program of Alcoholics Anonymous as it's described to us in Appendix 2 of the big book is about a spiritual awakening and having a change of personality. Which means that it's going to take me many, many years because some of us are sicker than others. And I was one very sick person when I came in here. But because I read everything and I loved it so much and I was two years sober and I was an AA Nazi for God's sake and I could quote everything Bill Wilson had ever said. They used to call me Bill Wilson's granddaughter in Toronto. You know, so I thought I was well. And I thought whoever I attracted would be a spiritual giant. Well, here's what I learned. Until I get really well, I will attract my insides on the outside. Like attracts like. Now, I was two years sober and John was five years sober. And um, what happens when you're both in love uh, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is you have on your peacock feathers. And you go to a lot of meetings and you strut your stuff to see each other. And someone asks you to read how it works and your eyes flit across a crowded room. <laughs> and you see him. And you can just see you and him wandering off into the sunset under the circle and the triangle. <laughs> because this is love. And this is spiritual love. And we're going to be okay for life. And my sponsor said, don't get married, you're an emotional retard. <laughs> and I knew she was jealous. <laughs> I knew. So John and me eloped. <laughs> and here's what happened when you're both that sick. And you haven't had the personality change. In the close intimacy of marriage, one by one, the peacock feathers start dropping off. <laughs> and in the end, all you have is the same two old turkeys sitting staring at one another. <laughs> we were, you see, I loved John, and John loved me, but we were too sick. And uh, we were psychologically destroying each other. An old Ernie called me from Edmonton. And he said, you better get out of there because your alcoholism is going to kick in. 
And Ernie said it right. And Clancy has said it to me as, too, as well. No matter how well we get, if we are in a, a love situation or a family situation where we are suffering a lot of tension and somebody is grinding us every day, one morning we can get up, we can be holding a bread knife, they'll say the wrong thing, and we'll turn around and stick it in them. That is alcoholism. we got to stay away from that kind of conflict. And he said, I suggest to you that you go back to the YWCA and leave that marriage. And I did. And I went to the YWCA. I was five years sober. And I knelt down. I said, God, I don't know what's good for me. You do. Show me the way, God. And I surrendered to the God of my understanding. And I have a little prayer I say all the time when I'm in situations. God, give me what I need and take away what I don't. I got a little job. I got a little apartment. I got a better job. And then my sons were acting up. And uh, they, they'd gone to live with their old ex-mother-in-law. And I had to go back to Jamaica. My sponsor says, go back to Jamaica and make amends to the island. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and I got very active in AA in Jamaica. And I made amends. And um was working with the poor people down there. I got one of my sons off to Europe and the other son I sent to Florida. Because they wanted to go away to school. That's what the trouble was. And eventually I came back. Now, here's where I'm going to tell you how I got a chance to make a living amends. Both my parents were dead by the time I got sober. And I did all the amends I could do. But my sponsor told me that eventually I would be shown a way to make some other amends. Well, that man I married in AA, John, when I came back, him and I signed a separation agreement. And about ten days after we signed it, he said to me, we would meet to discuss some other business. And I moved into the same building as he did, as he lived in, because we were friends. And my two sons had now, were now living with me. They'd come back to me when they were big adults. And um, I went up one day. I couldn't get him on the phone. And his door was bolted on the inside. And I had his door kicked in. And he was lying there. He'd had a massive stroke. And the hospital told me if I hadn't found him, he'd have been dead in eight hours. I had that intuitive thought. And from what we pieced together he was lying there for two nights and when I saw him lying there he was turning purple and this was in 1993 and I took his head in my lap and I said if he lives I'll look after him and uh, he had an enormous brain damage and um, he could never speak again and he was in the hospital for two years and then I took him home and I had him home with me for years and he could never speak again but we go to AA meetings I'd take him to if it was a conference in the States that I could drive into, I'd take him with me. And I got his medallions. And I never once lost my temper with him because it was, he was childlike. And, uh, and sometimes he'd just pat my face and smile at me. And, uh, there's two, <laughs> the only thing is he caused me great embarrassment because he couldn't speak and there's only two words that he could ever say. And I won't say them from the podium. <laughs> But all I'll tell you is that they mean, um, get lost. <laughs> and he'd shout them out whenever he felt like it. <laughs> John died in October 2001. And uh, before he died, I, I read him how it works. And I held his body till he grew cold. And uh, I felt so, I, God allowed me to complete that. And I'm so grateful. Because that is a living amends. I told you my sons came back to me. Uh, my eldest son got married and he now lives in Nanaimo. Um, when he was getting married, uh, he wanted his father and me to walk him down the aisle. And his father flew up from Jamaica with his other wife and uh, two daughters. And his father and me walked my son down the aisle in 1996. And the father is saying to me, My God, I thought you were beyond recall. You look marvelous. This AA is wonderful. <laughs> and I'm saying, Indeed it is. And I'm thinking to myself, 20 years ago, I hired two Jamaican gunmen to shoot you. <laughs> but I got too drunk. <laughs> but he doesn't know that, you know. I'm thinking, you were almost toast, my friend. But you think, in AA, you can think what you like, but you got to act right. So I just say, yes, and you're looking marvelous too, you know. And him, you know, and we have a good relationship today. And uh, my son in BC has given me two little daughters, granddaughters, Nina and Annabella. And I love them so much. 
My other son, Mark, he got married in Pickering, Ontario, four years ago. Um, my son, Mark, who was born in Jamaica, he got married in a kilt in a Ukrainian Orthodox church. <laughs> That's my boy. <laughs> and he danced with me to a tune called Mama. And uh, life is good. Uh, last year I had a lot of serious illnesses and I'm better now because I see people who have terrible illnesses going through it in AA. I'm very active in AA. By the grace of God, I get to go a lot of places. I gotta get, gotta get, go all over. I mean, I'm very, very fortunate, and uh, I, I am just so very, very grateful to Bill and Bob and to Alcoholics Anonymous and to everything that's given to me. I need my sponsor today as much as I've ever needed her because I have more to lose, and also because any mistakes I make today, I remember. <laughs> and you know, I'm not the woman I used to be. But I'm not the woman I'm going to be. I want to be better. But I suffer from the illness of alcoholism, not alcoholism. You know, I'm like the old timer I heard in Edmonton once. He says, you know, I know I need three meetings a week. But I don't know what three I need, so I go every night. <laughs> you know. I mean, I need this because I truly believe... The alcoholism is a knownness of the mind. And that no matter how well we get, it just takes the right set of circumstances. And we are back into the ism, which is the insane emotions. And that is why we hear about people at 20 and 25 years who are ending up with nervous breakdowns, you know. But the steps is laid out in the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. That is the answer to any kind of illness in my opinion, that we have in our mind. But Alcoholics Anonymous is for alcoholics. And, and you know, this thing is a purpose. Next year, the conference is in, the World Conference is in Toronto. And the theme for that is singleness of purpose, the cornerstone of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the cornerstone means the thing that keeps it together. This is a wonderful thing we have here. But just to show you, and I'll end with this, that no matter how spiritual I get, I mean, I'm still... Not all there some days, you know. I think I'm well. I'll give you an example. I go to a lot of meetings. I, spon- I sponsor a lot of women. I mean, I have one right now, you know. You know, I sit and she whines and she whines and I look at her. And what I really want to do is to put my hands around her scrawny little neck and say, Shut up! Shut up! You know? But I don't. I just say... Maybe we have to do something different. <laughs> but anyway, so... A few weeks ago, I had been away at a conference, and it was a wonderful conference, and I was feeling spiritual, and uh, the Monday morning, I was heading out to my hairdresser, and she called. Scrawny neck, you know, she called. <laughs> so anyway, I'm... I'm heading down to my hairdressers, and... I wasn't feeling right about something she told me, and um, and I began to think about it. And uh, somebody cut me off in the highway, and uh, I thought about chasing them, and I knew I'm in trouble, right? So anyway, I get in my hair, my hairdressers on Young Street, and there's a lot of construction there. And I've had my meditation and prayed and all of that stuff. Anyway, the guy says you're going to have to go down this side road. So I head down the side road, and there's a big truck coming out, and he wants me to reverse. That shows you I'm in trouble. Right? And I think, why should I reverse? But anyway, this big truck's coming. So I start reversing out, and there's these barriers there that the construction workers have got up. And I run over one of them. And there's a young construction worker, about 25, and he swears at me. And I roll down my window and I say, could you repeat that? And he does. So I forget about the truck. I make a U-turn in front of all this and the, the young construction worker says, where are you going? What are you doing, you crazy broad? I said, I'm coming to get you, you little SOB. <laughs> That's me. 
Alcoholics Anonymous is my dedication and my love. I am so very grateful to you. I feel it's so special that I'm here in Calgary. Thank you so much for bringing me here. Thank you. I know.